environment. Welcome, everybody, to the Air Environment. I'm the urban pastor, Jamin. Oh, right. Sorry. And I am the environmental scientist, Erin Schott. She just <laughs> wants me to introduce her. She... I just like it when you talk the most, I guess. Oh, well, our, our listeners may not feel the same way between all of the podcasts we offer. They probably want me to shut up. In fact, it's been joked two days in a row now that Jamin needs to shut up because he talks too much. So I will uh, be turning everything over to you, I guess. Uh, but Hey, uh, the air environment is now a part of the Jackson cloud. And if you're wondering what the Jackson cloud is spelled J X in cloud, uh, or you can just check out J X in cloud for, for more details. Jackson cloud is a new online church plant based out of Jackson, Michigan, but brings people from all over the place, even from Scotland, where Aaron is. Why do Americans uh, always do that? We have to. <laughs> we can't help it. Scotland. <laughs> and uh, Aaron's actually a part of the Jackson Cloud. She is our resident scientist, which is hilarious yes. because she is nowhere near residential area of Jackson. I'm a resident to the Jackson Cloud. Yeah. Uh, but you, too, could be a part of the Jackson Cloud and join this network of podcasts and morning shows and online community and online education and online mission sending. Uh, it was planted during coronavirus because, obviously, lots of people are struggling to get to church or find churches that are open or are doing church safely sometimes and all different kinds of things. So that's why we planted this and the air environment uh Every week or every other week or every few weeks or whatever repetition we create will kind of be Jackson Cloud space to get into all things science and faith. And uh, if you're joining us right now, you're joining us in the middle of a conversation. For a few weeks now, we've been talking about uh, creation and the different ways in which science and the creation narrative can intersect Um it's all different kinds of theories. Aaron's taken us through a bunch. You can look at the podcast that we've had in the last few uh, episodes to catch up with this uh, season one of the air environment. But today, she's taking us into, I believe, more of an allegorical view. Well, I sip my pop and uh, <laughs> shut up and listen to what other people have to say, I guess. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Jamin. That was a really good intro. Um we did just record an episode, so it was much better than your other segue. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you said 10 out of 10. It was solid. You said it was 10 out of 10 on that segue. Five gold stars. I didn't hear the sarcasm. I thought you said it was good. 
<laughs> anyway, uh, so like you said, we're going to finish our multi-part series of the interpretations of Genesis 1. And today we are going a little off the books and discussing um, Genesis as a literary allegory. So it's not necessarily specifically scientific, but it is a very popular interpretation of Genesis. And as a scientist, I like you to have all of the information before you make a decision on like what you may or may not agree with. So like, let's, let's, let's jump to it. <laughs> do it, do it, do, do it, it, do Lars. It. Uh, so to start, what is a literary allegory? Well, what is an allegory, as it were? Jamin, do you want to explain to the class what an allegory is? I love allegory, Erin. I know you do. I'm it. supposed to shut up, but sure. So I wrote allegory once. It's like my favorite kind of writing because uh, everything, you know, means something and is trying to like kind of bridge the gap between... You know, something will be said in one way, but really you're supposed to be thinking of something else. Right. Narnia, Narnia is great allegory because it brings alive faith and Bible passages in unique ways. But yeah, there's this hidden meaning behind what's being said. And typically if you, you know, you're going to pick up on the allegory only if you know like what the reference is to. Otherwise, you may not. So when I have a Jesus-like character in my book, Trip, and uh, because a snake bit his heel, you know, and he falls and then gets like a scar across his forehead. That is very like Odyssey of you, like, like yeah. Achilles heel. Very nice. Yeah, well, even there, I'm trying to take, like, Genesis, you know, the snake will bite his heel, but he will crush the snake's head. So, like, if you know the passages I'm referencing, you'll catch the allegory, and if you don't, then you miss the hidden meaning. So, that would, anyways. You and if you don't, me. still read a good story, so there is that. Yeah, and you probably wanted one sentence, and I've already talked for, like, a minute, so... <laughs> Well, to sum up what Jamin said, it's basically a literary device where a story, a poem, a character, or a like element within a story reveals hidden meaning. Uh, but it's often about a moral or real-world issues, like Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory for a spiritual journey, or Aslan is a literal allegory of Jesus, or your character, who is also an allegory of Jesus. So there's, like, there's many, many shades to this. So... Where does an allegorical interpretation of Genesis fit into what we're talking about today? While it's not a specific that this specific book's elements are symbols or types rather than a historical record of events, broadly, most Christians take Genesis as canonical scripture rather than a parable of sorts. And instead of an accurate historical record, the Genesis 1 allegory appears to describe our relationship to creation and the creator and what it means not only to be part of humankind, but as a follower of Christ. And that would be, that's basically what we would interpret Genesis one to be. But Aaron, I hear you say, <laughs> my much. Uh, if we interpret this part of the Bible as a literary allegory, doesn't that make it us to interpret any place in the Bible as a literary allegory? Well, I say yes. 
Because even ancient Christians had allegorical views of the Old Testament. Surprising, right? Uh, The Gospel of Matthew includes a couple of literary allegories, uh, such as in Matthew, was it 2.15? (laughs) See, I come with evidence. In 2.15, Matthew writes, uh, well, we'll start with 14 and 15. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And that's an allegorical interpretation of Hosea 11.1, uh, which I, yeah, I wrote in here, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. So Matthew, Matthew interprets this verse as Jesus being called out of Egypt. When when you read it, it like talks like it's all of Israel being taken as slaves out of Egypt being called out, like Israel, his son. So it's interesting that that occurred <laughs> in mm. ancient, even in ancient times. So so even early Christians were divided on how to interpret the days of... Well, did you have any comments on that, Jamin? Well, I was just going to say, if you want to see the interesting way in which the New Testament uses the Old Testament uh, um, in different ways, because just... this if you go to college to study to do pastoring today, like the biggest no-no of all time is you do not quote biblical passages out of context. So like Jeremiah 29, 11 is a very popular, you know, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. We love that passage. It makes us feel good, but that wasn't spoken to us. That was spoken to Israel in exile Right. Had and there's other verses all around that that are talking about like here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna be moved to the city and I expect you to prosper it, and as you prosper it, it will prosper you. You know, there's kind of stipulations as to how it works and all that. So like when we take it out of context, it we make it mean something different that it doesn't mean. But what's interesting in twenty twenty, that's like a huge Bible scholar no no. But like you just showed, the Bible constantly does that itself. So like, (laughs) and the way that the Bible works is like, as the authors are writing, they feel inspired by the Holy Spirit to take a passage and look at it in a new light as the Spirit brings it to their attention. So right around the same story that you quoted, there's a, um, when, when all, when Herod tries to kill all these babies because he's trying to get rid of Jesus, uh, it might be Matthew or Mark who quotes like um, the the weeping of uh, someone's children was so loud, uh, and that's an old Bible passage, but it had nothing to do with that moment. It was actually like an old narrative, but they quoted it, showing like the spirits giving us this kind of hidden meaning of something that happened in the Old Testament. Now we're feeling it again in a new way. So. <clears throat> Anyways, Peter ends is <laughs> inspiration and incarnation by Peter ends. If you want to see the interesting way in which the Bible quotes itself in and out of context and in doing so gives new biblical meaning to old passages because it is inspired. Right. Uh, it's it's a very good read and interesting. But actually, thank you for that cuz that like 
adds to my like point that it does quote itself and refer to things as an allegory within itself. So we have the ability as Christians to be able to, because the Bible does it, interpret it as a literary allegory um, and not be upset about it. Uh, mm. Even, But in this sense, even early Christians were divided on how to interpret the days of creation, either as literal days or as an allegory. So St. Basil the Great, if you don't know him, he's a theologian who lived between like, I mean, he was born in, like, th- I wrote it here in my notes, 330 and 379 AD, which were literal, like, roundabout birth and death dates for that man. So, he lived, and then he died. Um, he outright rejects uh, allegorical interpretations here. So, he says, like, I know the laws of allegory, though less myself than from the works of others. So, he's, like, admitting that he's not an expert. Um, but then he goes into like specifically talking about like days and evening, like there was an evening and then there was a morning. That's one day. And then in the evening and the morning, then we're a day. So why does scripture on day one say the first day? Like, why do they say the first day before telling us about the second, the third and the fourth days? Would it have not been better to just like tell us which days began the series? If it therefore says one day, it is a wish to determine the measurement of day and night and to combine the time that they contain. So that's him just being like, you're ridiculous. (laughs) Mm. So a man who lived in 330 AD was born then anyway. He, he even was like arguing with other people about how, how to interpret the Bible. So the, another person whose name is Origen of Alexandria, who lived around the same time he did, like, completely disagrees with him for, and, like, directly remarks on the first, second, and third, like, days. He's like, for who has an understanding will suppose that the first, second, and third day in the evening and the morning existed without a sun, a moon, and stars. And that was the first day, as it were, also without a sky, who is so foolish to suppose that God, after the manner of a husbandman, planted a paradise in Eden towards the east, placed it in a tree of life, um, and then again was a partaker of good and evil by masticating what was taken from the tree. So he's saying that like these things contain intricate mysteries and history haven't taken place in appearance, but like not literally. Like it's like God did all of these things, but he didn't do it in that literal amount of time, which is what he is saying mm-hmm. here. I mean, I would say, too, just like we've all sensed it, right? You read the opening chapters of Genesis and there's this poetic feel yes. to it. You know, it's like it's almost written in such a sense that like it's very much the like once upon a time because it just in the beginning and it's like yeah yeah in and the it's not to say God that created yeah and then you got first day second day third day fourth day the yeah. repetitions of it was good it was good it was very good you know there's there's definitely like very intricate writing style to these opening things and it's not again to say that it's not truth it's just it's a form of telling truth that there's hidden meaning you know again allegorically if you were to take it that route like what are the themes god makes order god creates you know yeah it's not as though like 
well, if this isn't word for word how it happened, God didn't create. It's like, no, the Bible writers would slap you in the face for saying that. You know, it's like, that's <laughs> clearly the point of the passage. But was it in this exact way? Anyways, proceed. No, no, it was like, yeah. Um, but so someone that we should all maybe know about is St. Augustine, which if you don't know him, his writing and teaching uh, teachings basically influenced all of Western philosophy and Western Christianity as we know it today. Um, so look him up. He's important. Uh, he suggested that the Bible should not be interpreted literally if it contradicts from what we know from science and God-given reason, which, you know, frankly, I agree with. <laughs> like, I can't, hmm, how can we see the natural world around us and laws of our nature, but then read something different in the Bible where it's not explicitly a miracle? So, St. Augustine believed that the universe was created all at once and that the six-day structure represented a logical framework. But if you would remember from the last podcast where I talked about the framework theory where God had things and then we filled them with things. Remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, rather than like a structural passage of time. Um, but he also comments on the literal interpretation of Genesis. And I have a quote, but it's very long, and I don't want to read all of it. So I'm just looking for <laughs> what he specifically talks about. With, this is a uh, famous quote where he's talking about, even an infidel will know something about science. Uh, I mean, it's from the literal interpretation of Genesis. Like, he... He literally wrote a passage called The Literal Interpretation of Genesis. (laughs) It's like two massive paragraphs long. So not as frequently that happens that something about the earth, about the sky, and other elements of the world, about the motion and rotation, or even the magnitude and distances of the stars, about the definite eclipses of the sun and moon, and about the passage of years and seasons, about the nature of animals, of fruits and stones, of other such things, may be known by the greatest certainty, by reason or by experience, even by one who is not a Christian. So it is too grace, disgraceful and ruinous to be greatly avoided that the non-Christian should hear Christians speaking so idiotically on these matters as according with Christian writings that he might say that he could scarcely keep from laughing, which how in total error they are. So, And this yes. was written a very, very long very time ago. Long. When their science was still very, very wrong. Yes. So he's like, keep this in mind when you're talking about Genesis. Like, Mm. it's explained and set forth in an obscure way to help people understand, like, what is being said about it. So... Yeah, and I think we quoted that passage in our, like, first or second episode as well. Uh, And that one... That one, I think, is just crucial to understand. Like, I say this in my alien theology book when we're just kind of looking at science and faith. But, like, for you as a Christian, like, it doesn't really bother me where, like, if you want to see Genesis as literal the way that it happened, Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't bother me because that's not like a crucial, you know, like, have am I going to heaven or hell kind of theological question? You know, it's, right. it's kind of up to you. But it does it doesn't do well for our evangelistic techniques to the rest of the world who knows scientific fact and theory on another level 
if we're going to fight over that thing, just as Augustine just said, you know, like there are people out there, they know the way science works. And we're like, no, the Bible says otherwise. And they're like, well, then how am I ever going to trust your Bible on anything important like salvation if it doesn't even know how the world works? And that's what Augustine goes on to say. So, so it does actually become an important evangelistic conversation for our lives even though it may not be of crucial importance to you in your personal life or salvation, I guess, you know, and you might fight me on that. I'm just thinking out loud. <laughs> I might fight you on that. So, uh, yeah, like it was basically everything you just said is what um, St. Augustine was trying to say. So what, so that's ancient Christianity. So what does modern contemporary Christianity say? Well, we know Many Christians have rejected a literal interpretation of Genesis and have interpretations such as the literary framework view, which I've already referenced. So then we get into the crux of the matter. And you remember at the beginning, Jamin, when I said this wasn't about science? Uh-huh. Well, I lied. <laughs> oh, snap. Oh, I lied so badly. <laughs> Modern theologians actually lean heavily on the allegorical interpretations of Genesis because it supports modern scientific concepts. If you'll remember, way back in the beginning, I basically like said that the only, there isn't anything that really supports all ideals, like all areas and every branch of science. And then every single time I talked about something, I said scientifically that it's rejected by this and it's rejected by this. This um, allegorical interpretation is, in fact, the only creation belief that I have talked about so far that is accepted and supports every branch of science because it's a literary interpretation <laughs> and not uh, not a scientific one. Yeah. So let's 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 dive into that because I have a few things to talk about, and one of them is very exciting, and I cannot wait till we get to it. Um, cause I found about it last night and then I spent about four hours just reading about it online and now I'm like uh, a nerd and I'm obsessed. Um, <laughs> so let's start with Ludwig Ott, who is an early 20th century theologian. He wrote specific comments on creation and science. Um, and they're all, he wrote a lot of things. You know, I wrote, I was like, oh, look at, I have these tabs open. I'll be like, read quote, but I never highlighted what the quote was. And I'm <laughs> learning that, like, my notes need to be better. <laughs> uh, here it is. Uh, so he's talking about the church gives no positive decisions in regard to purely scientific questions, but limits itself into rejecting errors which endanger faith. Further, in these scientific matters, no virtue in a consensus of the fathers, since they are not here acting as witnesses of the faith. So he refers to fathers are like saints, the church councils, popes, uh, but merely as private scientists. Since the findings of reasons and the supernatural knowledge of faith go back to the same source, namely to God, there can never be a real contradiction between certain discoveries of the profane sciences and the word of God properly understood. So he's basically saying like, Science and religion go hand in hand, and if we have something that is strictly non-scientific and doesn't match what we know, then it mu- we must be interpreting it incorrectly. Mm. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. So that that guy, he's he's newer. 
20th century. I think it's like he was born like 1908. Uh, but even Pope John Paul wrote about this specific issue in to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences, which is an academy in Vatican City uh, to promote the sciences within the context of Christianity. And I thought that was really neat. Even the Pope has a science branch, and I'd never heard about it before. Catholics really created a lot of scientific theory that Christians still like, no, that's not real, you know, like, they've been <laughs> they've been huge into science because for them, like, that's a way in which God works since God made science. But, you know, that's a whole nother, sorry. Proceed. Yeah, well, no, well, uh, yeah, he said that the Bible exists to speak to the origins of the universe, but does not imbue us with scientific fact, but to outline our relationship with God and the universe. Specifically, the Bible does not wish to teach us how heaven was made, but how one goes to heaven. So, we, like, Genesis 1 is there for us to learn and gain from as a Christian and not necessarily to, like, learn about how the universe was created. It's not a history book. And then, uh, do you have anything to say about Pope John Paul II? As much as I know my popes, no, I do not. It's a very popular one, from what I understand. Yeah, I know, because I've heard of that one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and now the thing I've been dying to talk about the whole time, there a project started in 2004 called the Clergy Literature Project, which frankly is just the coolest thing ever because I'm going to go off on a little side tangent here. Uh, it was a project that was created to demonstrate that science and religion can be compatible, but specifically the project was started in 2004 in Wisconsin when a school board passed a series of anti-evolution policies, so they did not want to teach uh, evolution. So a clergyman said, well, I don't want that to happen, and he's Protestant. So in a few weeks, he wrote a, wrote a response, and he asked for other clergymen to support him. So he had nearly 200 clergy signed a statement, which they sent to the school board in December of 2024, <laughs> 2004, get into the 20 habit, and you just can't kill it. Um and additionally, like, educators and scientists sent letters to the specific school board, and in response to all this attention, as well as efforts from others, they, they retracted their policies. And so this outpouring of support around the country encouraged this man, Michael Zimmerman, he's the founder project about um, just spreading science and uh like like christianity and it's they have a total of 17,000 signatures on a series of letters um so they have like christian ones jewish ones buddhist ones humanist ones like basically like religions supporting science and saying that we work together and they've even created a database of scientists from uh, it was like what is it? I'm looking at the database now. It has over a thousand scientists on it from all 50 states, D.C., Puerto Rico, and 31 countries. Like, I even looked up, and there's some in Scotland. So I was so excited to see this, like, actual scientists. And a lot of them are, like, professors of biology at, like, um, different universities. And you can contact them. And if you're a pastor and you need some science consultants, you obviously don't because you have me. So... <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, but it's just like it's just the coolest thing. I was so excited about it. Like the website does look a little outdated, but it's run by one man, and for one man running uh, one website and ha- still ma- getting like literally almost twenty thousand signatures on these letters is just like absolutely mind boggling. And they have like a specific like supporting science and faith thing and it says we the undersigned christian clergy from many different traditions believe in the timeless truths of the bible and discoveries of modern science may comfortably coexist we believe the theory of evolution is a fundamental scientific truth and one that has stood up rigorous scrutiny upon much of human knowledge and achievement this truth rests to treat one theory among others and has deliberately embraced scientific ignorance and transmit the ignorance of our children. Believe that God's good gifts are minds capable of critical thought and that the failure to comply to his gift is a rejection of the will of our creator. So their whole shtick is that like science and religion go hand in hand. And like literally what I've been saying multiple times over and over again is that God gives us tools to interpret him and not necessarily a timeline of history. Uh, and uh, seriously, I will tweet out uh, a link to this website because it's genuinely the coolest thing I've ever seen. And I'm going to send it to all my professors that I met at Spring Arbor because I feel like this is something that they should be on. And it is so cool. Um, and I cannot believe it's just been hiding for like <laughs> 16 years and for yeah. me to discover it randomly on an afternoon. It's also crucial. I mean, that was what changed my opinion in college is I was only ever told if you're a Christian, you have to believe that this is exactly how it happened in Genesis. Mm -hmm. And in college, my theology professor was just like, you know, the science professors here would never say that, right? (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) it's like, what? They're not Christians? Like, that was what went through my mind, you know? And it's like, no, they are. Just no scientist is going to be like, no, nah, that's not real. I mean, you'll find some who will fight it, I'm sure. But right. um, it, it, he's like, no, all the scientists that work here on campus that I know would be offended. You know, it's like, oh, <laughs> I didn't know science and evolution could, or the Bible and evolution could coexist, nor did I know that there were Christians who, who believed that way because i was never told that that was possible so that 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 was what finally that and what also shattered me in that moment was this understanding of why does jamin think he's smarter than scientists (laughs) (laughs) like i don't i i don't do well at science i haven't passed those classes with flying colors (laughs) and here's just average jamin being like oh i'll tell you scientists how it worked you know it's like maybe I'm in the wrong. So like that that shifted my life in this conversation. Yeah. So approaching Genesis one as like a like you said, a piece of poetry. First of all, beautiful poetry. Um and it's and as an allegory for creation for God to show us that like how he created the universe and our place within it is honestly so beautiful and so much like nicer to think about than like a literal timeline of events like because because like like linking back to the literary framework where it's like god creates a place and then fills it but then god created man like later so he created a place for us and then filled it with us 
Like he didn't he didn't just like pop us into existence like he, like he as the creator he actively spent time and he wanted us to know that I didn't just like zap everything into existence. I like organized and thought out. It was like it's like it's like when you plan a wedding, like you like you go out of your way to like make sure every step is perfect that way when guests arrive or the day happens that it just feels right. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and like looking at it as an interpretation in a literary sense makes it so much more meaningful than just like six thousand years ago, beep bop boop like this happened. Yeah. 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 Um, and I want to end on this one um, passage. And I know I'm reading a lot of quotes today, but uh, I think it's important to support like evidence with like text. <laughs> so I apologize if everyone's tired of me reading other people's words. But uh, an evangelical author named Gordon J. Glover, uh, he argues for an ancient Near Eastern cosmology interpretations of Genesis, which he like labels the theology of creation in the, his book called Beyond the Firmament, Understanding Science and the Theology of Creation. Um, and it's really poignant, and I think it's a great place to end on. And it says, uh, Christians need to understand the first chapter of Genesis for what it is, an accurate rending of the physical universe by ancient standards that God used as a vehicle to deliver timeless theological truth to his people. We shouldn't try to make Genesis into something that it's not by dragging it through 3,500 years of scientific progress. When reading Genesis, Christians today need to transport themselves back to Mount Sinai and leave our modern minds in the 21st century. If you only remember one thing from this chapter, make it this. Genesis is not giving us creation science. It is giving us something much more profound and practical than that. Genesis is giving us a biblical theology of creation. And I just think that is a really great note to just end the whole, like, our whole series on creation. Like, it's very poignant and, like, just great. It's good. <laughs> good, good. Agreed. <laughs> I think there's a... Sorry, you said you wanted to end on that quote. No, no, it's just shut up. Talking. No, I was just saying, like, I have nothing left for you. Oh. <laughs> so no, I, was, I was holding on to one thought until the end. So uh, I think both. Uh, so there's John Walton is a great uh, Old Testament scholar. He's written a lot on Genesis. In his book, The Lost World, Genesis 1, he gets into this. In my mind, I think N.T. Wright, who's a very famous uh, scholar, also says the same thing, but I could be wrong because I couldn't find it right away. Uh, but essentially, they say they say this. Uh, when we're trying, a lot of people who would defend like it happened exactly as it happened, they would call that like the literal view. Like it literally happened like this. And what's funny they say about that word is like literal is about like a literary like you know it literarily <laughs> happened like this that what is the literal meaning of this passage and if the literal meaning of genesis is to literarily <laughs> tell you like look for the meaning in this and we take it at point blank as like this is exactly how it happened we're actually doing it an injustice by misunderstanding how 
yeah. like the literary technique that they're using. So a lot of times we focus this whole idea around literal literary when like the, the whole point is what is the style here? What is it trying to say? Right. And if you take it the wrong way, you actually are doing it injustice. So that was all I was hanging on to. It's not as deep as I thought it would be, but I liked it. <laughs> thanks. I liked it because, um, we encourage as Christians, we encourage ourselves to constantly be studying the Bible and reading it, interpreting it. And how can we sit there and tell people to interpret the Bible as a work of literature? Just like, they're like, we'll do everything except this one part. Like this is, this is all like, but like interpret everything else. And it's like, wait a minute. Like, yeah. And there's plenty more that you don't take serious about the Genesis account. So you just need to own up to that. Like, why do you, <laughs> why do you cut out the firmament? This snow globe ceiling over the earth with water above it that when the gates open up, it rains. Like, you don't believe in that. That's a part of Genesis one. So like, why do you get to cut out those pieces? Right. Like you, like, you have to like have all these other pieces. Like there there's a contradiction right there in itself. So <laughs> anyways, that's my two cents. <laughs> well, I think it's a really good two cents. And if I double it, I'll make it four cents. But I have no Woo. sense left. So is that a saying? I don't know. Well, it should be. All right. <laughs> Well, Erin has no sense left, so we should probably let her go, I think. Sounds good. But thanks for joining us yesterday on the morning show for Jackson Cloud. And yeah, it's. I'm really excited to keep coming back. Um, it was really fun, and you guys have a very nice-looking studio, so it should be a good time. Thanks. And yeah. if you all missed that, there's two ways you can access it, either on the Jackson Cloud YouTube channel or on the Jackson Cloud uh, podcast which we just launched. So, you know, if you're not a visual person, then you can listen to it there. Yeah. Along with all or the uh, follow too. this podcast on Twitter. If you've got a Twitter, it's the at air environment at the environment. Like you can find us. Indeed. We're part of the Jackson cloud network. So Woo. I need like a. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. I feel like, uh, like other podcasts when they're part of things, they're like, we're part of something. And I'm like, ha ha. I'm part of something now. So that's right. It's a bigger <laughs> Alrighty. Well, with that, we will catch you guys next time on The Air Environment.